Every battle is won before it's ever fought. Think about it. Y'all know me, still the same EIC for the INV, but I keep it low-key. No deals, serving no meals for those other Gs. No frills, mad skills, I keep it low-key. Riding low, y'all know you can find me on TV, dropping thoughts on stocks in the economy. Y'all saw what happened just recently when inflation took that dip. Stocks roared back like instantly, the shorts they started a trip. Then banks said things are better and every sector started to riff. To 52-week highs, what a surprise, market breadth is looking fit. Now the Fed's gotta put its head together and decide what happens next. Another quarter point hike, yo, that just might really put inflation to rest. But it also might tip the economy into a doom loop recession. With bankruptcies, hiring freezes, and asset repossessions. Or maybe the economy is stronger than everyone thinks. Businesses have more resiliency than that heavyweight Leon Spinks. The thing is that we won't know until it's way too late. Recessions be stealth like that, they don't knock on the front gate. We gotta know when to zig, where to zag, and how to navigate. How to read the signs, look between the lines, and keep our heads on straight. Have a plan, take a stand, adjust our risk, and postulate. Ride the rails on this express together, take the curves and elevate. Welcome back and welcome aboard and take a deep breath and feel the momentum. The Dow and the Nasdaq are coming off their best week since March and the S&P 500 capped its best week in six as better than expected inflation data and earnings reports from some of the biggest banks put the charge back into stocks. The gains were led by communication services, think Meta and Alphabet, consumer discretionary stocks, thank you Apple and Amazon, and technology stocks, thank you NVIDIA. Those giant mega caps have been mopping up money all year. And the Magnificent Seven, which includes those stocks plus Tesla and Microsoft, now have a combined market cap of around $11 trillion, and they've collectively driven 73% of the S&P 500's gains so far this year. While that overconcentration has a lot of folks worried about the stability of this rally, market breadth has actually been improving lately. The consumer discretionary sector, which includes Apple and Amazon, of course, is at a 52-week high, up some 36% since it bottomed last October. But you got stocks in there like Nike and Hilton hitting higher highs all the time. Consumer discretionary stocks, not tech, are the best performing sector of the stock market since this bull market began 13 months ago. There's a lot of worrying going on about consumer spending lately, but don't tell the stock market that. We're going to get into more of that in a minute. It's the inflation deflation that's been getting all of the attention lately, and for good reason. Consumer prices rose at their slowest pace in two years last month, according to the latest consumer price index figures from the Labor Department, clocking in at 3% year over year. Actually, if you really did the math, it'd be more like 2.97%, but we round up for simplicity, and that's getting close to the promised land for inflation, that 2.5% figure the Federal Reserve wants to see. Have you seen the light? Yes! Yes! You know it, Jake. Those relentless rate hikes are working as consumer prices have declined for 12 consecutive months. That ties the record from 2021 in case you're keeping score, and it's got more experts actually believing in a so-called soft landing, that Goldilocks scenario where the U.S. economy avoids a recession and inflation continues to wane. And that brings us straight into our big three, for the week. Number one, another big reason behind the U.S. stock market lately is the dollar's decline. Remember what our pal J.C. Peretz at All Star Charts teaches us. The dollar and the U.S. stock market have an inverse correlation. A strong dollar hurts the bottom lines of the mega cap based U.S. companies who derive more than half of their sales outside of this country. And the ICE dollar index, which measures the U.S. dollar against a basket of six other major global currencies, including the euro, Swiss franc, Japanese yen, Canadian 
Canadian dollar, British pound, and the Swedish krona is approaching its lowest levels of the year. As inflation falls amid the Fed rate hikes, so does the US dollar, and that is even more good news for the tech-heavy US equity markets. We're probably going to hear more of that theme in the coming weeks when tech companies report their quarterly results. Number two, if you don't think mutual fund managers are paying attention to all these dynamics and moving their assets in response, think again. According to B of A Research, active mutual fund managers' total equity exposure is now above 90%. That's the highest level since November of 2021. When the S&P 500 bottomed back in October, their exposure was less than 20%. They were hiding in cash and bonds, but they are back and they are buying, and that is another big reason the S&P 500 is up 17.5% so far this year, the second best start to a year in the past 20 years. Only 2019 was better. And number three, you know you've become an economic force when you make it into the Federal Reserve's beige... That's the sound of 20,000 Swifties outside Lincoln Financial Field at Taylor Swift's Eras concert tour a couple of months ago. Tay-Tay, as my girls call her, has been packing stadiums across the planet for the past several months on this tour, pulling in an estimated $14 million per concert every time she hits the stage. The one, maybe the ultimate representation of consumer discretionary spending, which, as we've said, is holding up all too well, and consumers are feeling pretty confident lately, according to the latest consumer sentiment readings. They just topped their highest levels since September of 2021. According to the Philadelphia Federal Reserve Bank's latest contribution to the Beige Book summary, May was the strongest month for hotel revenue in Philadelphia since the onset of the pandemic, in large part due to an influx of guests for, you guessed it, the Taylor Swift concerts in the city. Now that is juice, and Taylor is untouchable. Let's get set up for a busy week ahead, and the buzz is all about earnings. We're going to hear results from widely held stocks, including Netflix, Bank of America, IBM, Goldman Sachs, J&J, Tesla, and United Airlines, among others. It's early days in earnings season, but 13 out of the 14 companies that are reported so far have beaten expectations. Get used to that theme. On the economic front, look for the U.S. Census Bureau's latest drop on June retail sales for more color on the strength of consumer spending. And we're going to get more data on the U.S. housing market with building permits, housing starts, and existing home sales for June. June may have been the beginning of the thawing of the U.S. housing market as mortgage rates have been ticking lower as the Fed nears its terminal rate. As for the central bank, it will be in a quiet period this week ahead of its next meeting on interest rates July 25th and 26th. According to the CME's FedWatch tool, there's still a better than 90% probability that the Fed will hike rates another quarter of a percent to deal the final death blow to inflation. But that looks like the end of the rate hikes this year, at least right now. Last time. We'll also get inflation reports this week from the UK, the Eurozone, and Japan. In case you haven't felt the tremors, there's a Bitcoin bull stampede happening in crypto land, and it's been going on all year. The OG of cryptocurrency is up some 85% year-to-date, way outperforming the S&P 500, the NASDAQ 100, and just about every other so-called asset class on the planet. To be sure, Bitcoin investors had a terrible 2022, with the price falling some 65%, but it's back, 
and the momentum feels kind of real again. But why is this happening? Is this the old Bitcoin as an inflation hedge theory, so-called digital gold as a safe haven? Is the next Bitcoin having event on the horizon? Or is it that the biggest asset managers on the planet, including BlackRock and Fidelity, have been filing to offer Bitcoin-related exchange-traded funds? No one knows these waters better than Nate Geraci. He's the president of the ETF store, the co-founder of the ETF Institute, and the host of the terrific podcast, ETF Prime. And he is our special guest this week, on the Express. Welcome, Nate. Pleasure to be here. We are big fans of yours. So given all of those things I laid out, and there's probably some things I missed, what's your best educated guess on Bitcoin strength this year? What is going on? Well, I think there's a number of factors. I think one, we have to look back to 2022, which was an absolutely brutal year for crypto overall. The SEC was very aggressive in pursuing different players in the crypto space. Of course, we had the FTX debacle, there were a number of other debacles in the crypto space. And so everything was down substantially. So I think part of what we're seeing this year is just a bounce back in that. There's some other factors at play. I think there's a, a certain camp of investors that think maybe the Fed is not going to be as aggressive moving forward. Some people would say that if rates come back in, that's supportive of growth assets and areas like Bitcoin. And then, of course, what you were alluding to, we now have this huge frenzy around the potential of a spot Bitcoin ETF with an asset manager like BlackRock jumping in. So at high level, I think those are a few things that are, are driving Bitcoin this year. Yeah, I want to get into the big asset managers in a minute here. But who really controls the market for Bitcoin? We've always heard that there are some whales out there that control the majority of the Bitcoin that are out there and kind of know what's being made, who's making it, and they move the market. Certainly doesn't feel like retail investors have that sway, even though there's a lot of us that may have a little bit of it, but who really controls this market from your perspective, Nate? Yeah, I mean, clearly there are some whales out there that have significant holdings of, of Bitcoin, but I don't know that that market is any different than what we see in other securities markets. We can look on the equity side, and there are a number of companies that have very large holders of their stocks. And so I, I don't know that there's great data out there that whales are necessarily pushing around the price of Bitcoin. You know, if that was the case, you wouldn't see Bitcoin drop 65% or whatever it did last year. So I don't have great data on that. Are there some players out there that on the margins can maybe move the price of Bitcoin a little bit? That's possible, but I think that's the case in a lot of securities. This rally has been going on despite the regulatory overhang. You mentioned that the SEC and Gary Gensler, the commissioner, very aggressive against the Bitcoin exchanges last year and some this year. He's really going after the exchanges. Yet we've seen the rally, not just in Bitcoin, but in Ether and some other tokens and crypto assets out there as well. Is it devil may care or is there a feeling that the SEC is going to land somewhere that might be amenable towards this marketplace and investors that want to participate? I think it's tough to say at this point. You know, Gary Gensler has been very vocal that he views crypto as the Wild West. He consistently talks about the potential for fraud and manipulation in that space. Clearly, they've had very aggressive enforcement actions, as I mentioned earlier, against a number of players in the crypto space. So I don't know that the rally that we have seen in various crypto assets this year has been driven by any optimism per se, on the regulatory side, I think there's still a lot of uncertainty there. Could they be clearer on where they want to take the regulations here? The EU seems to have a little bit more of a handle on this, or maybe I'm reading too far between the lines here. Or do they just not know what the future is for regulating Bitcoin and other assets like this? 
It's such a great point because ultimately the SEC is going to take their guidance from Congress and lawmakers. And the fact is we do not have a sound regulatory framework in place for the crypto ecosystem right now. I think that's the failure. And the SEC, given that there is that lack of framework, they kind of have to go off of what their instinct and historical operating procedures are in pursuing regulation in this space. I think what it comes back to is, again, just this basic lack of a regulatory framework in place. That's something that Congress has to act on. Yeah, we've seen Congress try to explain Bitcoin and and this ecosystem, and it's not pretty. But it's not like this just got here. Now we're a good 12, 15 years in to the cryptocurrency galaxy, so to speak. And a lot has actually happened since then. Bitcoin is the top performing so-called asset, as I say, of any asset, not just over the last half a year or since the beginning of the year. But if you go back 10 years, there's nothing that comes even close to that. And there may be a lot, a lot of reasons, limited supply, a lot of enthusiasm around it, magnificent rises and crashes. It's got a sexiness factor to it, but there's also been the notion of it as digital gold. Do you think that still persists where people do think it's an inflation hedge? What's your take on that? Well, first of all, I just want to make the comment, going back to the regulatory side, one of the things that I think is frustrating for a lot of individuals within the crypto space is that there's clearly been some bad actors in the space. But there are also a lot of individuals and businesses that are trying to do the right thing and build that space. And the lack of regulation there has made it very difficult for people who are trying to do the right thing in crypto. I just want to mention that. But in terms of the use cases for Bitcoin, you know, look, I think it's very different depending upon who you talk to. I think clearly Bitcoin's potential value is highly complex and it's controversial. I would say the most common parallel that you hear is to what you were alluding to, which is to gold, since Bitcoin is often referred to as digital gold. There's a decent chunk of investors that think gold has real merit and that it functions as a store of value and a portfolio diversifier. But there's another chunk of investors who think gold is a worthless rock, that it's a relic. I don't think it's any different with Bitcoin. I think some see it as a digital store of value. I think other people see it as vaporware. I will say, you know, whether we're talking about Bitcoin or gold or pretty much any currency store value, including the US dollar, it's all based on trust. And there's this belief that someone else believes it has value, right? Bitcoin has just digitized that and removed the middleman. So it's a complex topic, but I think the parallel to gold is probably the most common view of Bitcoin. All right, let's set the stage with the asset managers like BlackRock and Fidelity filing for these spot Bitcoin ETFs. First of all, explain to our listeners the difference between a traditional ETF, and I know you know that world really well, and a spot Bitcoin ETF. You don't actually own the underlying asset, do you? Well, you own the underlying, I would say indirectly in that what you have is the underlying asset stored with a custodian. And your ETF shares represent an ownership interest in that security store with the custodian. doesn't matter whether we're talking about a stock, a bond, or Bitcoin. So there's no difference between a, a, you know, a stock or equity ETF on the market and a spot Bitcoin ETF. Ultimately, your shares represent a claim to that underlying asset. In the case of a spot Bitcoin ETF, it would be Bitcoin. All right. So the custodians either have to own it or have to have some agreement to access it, 
because somebody has to control it at the end of the day. So why do you think BlackRock and Fidelity and other big asset managers jumped in the game so recently and so aggressively? They're not stupid. They have some of the smartest lawyers on the planet and pretty expensive ones out there that kind of know the regulatory landscape. Why would they do this now? Well, this is what makes the story so fascinating right now, because I think anytime the world's largest asset manager ventures into an emerging category, that's going to get people's attention. And I think the filing for a spot Bitcoin ETF was noteworthy just because of what we were talking about previously and that the SEC has been extremely aggressive in attempting to regulate this space, right? They've basically taken this regulation by enforcement approach. So I think for anybody on the outside looking in, it was a surprise to see the world's largest asset manager, who we know is very well connected to regulators. We know they're very well connected to politicians. It was a surprise to see them jump into the space, right, where the SEC has been taking no prisoners. So in terms of what they know, look, all we can do is speculate at this point. BlackRock filed very soon after we saw a slew of other issuers jump in right behind them. At the same time, we have this grayscale lawsuit, which we can talk a little bit about as well, because I think that's factoring in here. But in terms of what BlackRock knows, I'll, I'll just say this. BlackRock, they have an existing partnership with Coinbase. And that Coinbase provides crypto trading and custody and those sorts of things to institutional clients of BlackRock. We also know that BlackRock is one of the largest holders of Coinbase stock. And so I don't think it's crazy to think that BlackRock holds at least some sway in Coinbase's boardroom. It's not inconceivable to me to think that maybe they convinced Coinbase to enter into a surveillance sharing agreement with NASDAQ. And we can talk about surveillance sharing agreements as well. Or maybe they're heading down the path of trying to get Coinbase to become a registered exchange altogether. And maybe because of the relationship that BlackRock had with Coinbase previously, they knew that this was a path that Coinbase was open to. And that gave them enough confidence to say, hey, we think we can get Coinbase to the finish line here, which will ultimately get the SEC comfortable. Let's go ahead and file for a spot Bitcoin ETF. That would be my speculation on what happened. Because again, I think BlackRock previously had not filed for a spot Bitcoin ETF, right? They weren't even in the game. Now, I said several years ago, I thought at some point they would jump in. And it wasn't a surprise to me that they jumped in. The timing of them jumping in is what makes this interesting. And it's hard not to think that they know something. I think Bloomberg has a stat that BlackRock has filed for something like 550 or 575 ETFs over the years. They've only had one denial. And that was on a, a non-transparent structure that the SEC just wasn't comfortable yet. So point being, BlackRock is not in the business of filing for products that they think the SEC is not going to allow. Right. And Fidelity uh, kind of been kicking around Bitcoin and blockchain related activities for a very long time. Words on the street that they even mine their own Bitcoin. We know Abigail Johnson's kind of interested in and has been not just in the last year. She's been in this game for quite a while. They're another massive asset manager. A lot of people have their accounts with them. They're in this too. But let's get back to what you were saying about the surveillance agreement. I know it's deep in the woods, but at the same time, if these spot Bitcoin ETFs are going to be approved and allowed, then regulators are going to want transparency into the trading activity so they can sniff out any nefarious activity. What is the essence of a surveillance agreement? And what does it mean for investors like us who are just like, we want to make sure that we're putting our money into something that has some guardrails around it. And if something goes south, there's a way to get to the bottom of it and get our money back. Well, you said it pretty well in that 
The SEC, again, has said repeatedly that they're concerned about the potential for fraud and manipulation in the underlying spot Bitcoin market itself. And that has been the primary reason why they have rejected every single spot Bitcoin ETF application that has come before them. The way that ETF issuers can overcome those concerns is by having their listing exchange. So in the case of the potential BlackRock ETF, their listing exchange would be NASDAQ. So they can have their listing exchange enter into a surveillance sharing agreement with a spot crypto market that the SEC deems is of significant size. In other words, there's enough volume, there's enough transactions in the underlying asset, in this case, Bitcoin occurring on that exchange. To answer your question directly, what that does in a nutshell is it allows regulators to access account and trading information at the crypto exchange itself. In the event, there was some belief that there was this fraud or manipulation, that there were bad actors attempting to manipulate the price of Bitcoin. So that gives NASDAQ the ability to access that information, but more importantly, the SEC. They want the ability to look through and sniff out if there were some nefarious trades going on in Bitcoin in this case. That's all the surveillance sharing agreement does. Which makes perfect sense. You want that visibility to make sure that you can get to the bottom of any nefarious trading or bad players in the industry. So you mentioned Grayscale. For folks that may go deep with us on the Express, we had Michael Sonnenschein on years ago when they first filed and started creating basically a mutual fund around Bitcoin, which eventually maybe one day they turn into an ETF, but they've filed lawsuit. They've been very aggressive with the SEC. What is that lawsuit all about? And why is it important, this dynamic around these other big asset managers suddenly getting into the game? Yeah. So the gist of the Grayscale lawsuit is that the SEC allowed Bitcoin futures ETFs to come to market, but they won't allow these spot ETFs that we're talking about. And so Grayscale is claiming there's been a violation of what's called the Administrative Procedures Act because the SEC isn't treating like situations alike. For the record, I agree with Grayscale. And the reason why is because if you just think about this high level, the underlying futures that are held by Bitcoin futures ETFs, they get their pricing reference from the exact same crypto exchanges as a spot Bitcoin ETF would. And so if there is fraud and manipulation in the spot market, intuitively, I don't think this is hard to get your head around, that's obviously going to impact the pricing of Bitcoin futures as well. The two are tight at the hip. And so it doesn't make sense to me to say that you're comfortable with futures and not spot. Plus, the SEC is saying that the CME Bitcoin futures market is not a significant size. They're saying that in the rejection of the spot Bitcoin ETFs. At the same time, they've approved Bitcoin futures ETFs based on those same CME traded futures. It's really tough logic to follow. Now, the only argument I can see supporting allowing futures to come to market and not spot is that with futures, an ETF issuer doesn't actually have to custody the Bitcoin, which we were talking about before, right? And maybe. Maybe that's a big hurdle for the SEC. The only reason I don't give that a ton of credence is because in the prior denials of spot Bitcoin ETFs, they haven't really pointed to the custody of Bitcoin as being the issue. Their biggest concern is this potential for fraud and manipulation in the spot market and the ability to surveil that. Again, if you're going to allow Bitcoin futures to trade, they're taking the exact same pricing cues as a spot Bitcoin ETF. That's the essence of the Grayscale lawsuit. It's good for being able to track the asset through the blockchain where there's full transparency there, 
But today, 2023, what is Bitcoin good for that's just going to be useful to the planet in any way besides the, the energy it takes to mine it, which is not good? But again, I come back to what we talked about earlier. I mean, I think there's a lot of differing views on that. I think in the financial advisory community in particular, the most prevalent view of Bitcoin is that it is digital gold, that it does have scarcity, it's fungible, it can't be counterfeited. You know, in the case of Bitcoin, you don't have to physically store it like you do gold. And think about it like this. If you look at the physical gold ETF market, that currently has about $100 billion in assets here in the US. Gold to me, again, is a perfect corollary because think about how much debate there is in the financial advisory community around gold and whether that has value. You have advisors that absolutely love gold and you have others that they hate it. You know, think, think about Warren Buffett, who says, you know, you can put gold up on your mantle and look at it and, and caress it and all that. But, you know, he sees it as a, a pet rock. That's all you can do is look at it. But there's something else I want to mention here, Caleb, because I have been pretty vocal and outspoken just on the topic of a Bitcoin ETF. I, I tweet about it a lot. I meme about it. I've been covering this very closely. People see me campaigning for a spot Bitcoin ETF and they automatically assume that means that I'm some sort of Bitcoin bull. I want to be very clear. That is not the case. I have absolutely no idea what might happen with the price of Bitcoin. I've said many times before, it's entirely possible Bitcoin goes to zero. I don't think anyone can say with full certainty that's not a possibility. It could also be a home run, right? Nobody knows. But if you think about that, what with what I just said, that could be the case with a number of companies in, say, the Russell 2000, right? There's plenty of companies that could be a home run or they could go to zero. We, we see it all the time. Nobody knows for sure that's investing. But what I do know for a fact is that investors want exposure to Bitcoin. And we know that because look at something like the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust we were talking about, GBTC. $20 billion is in that product. It's a broken product. We know there are billions in Bitcoin on Coinbase. And so it doesn't matter whether I think there's value or you, you think there's value. We know that there are investors who want exposure to the price of Bitcoin. And so that's a long way of saying that my Bitcoin ETF advocacy has been, why not provide those people with a better way to get exposure? And I believe that's what a Bitcoin ETF would do. It's really that simple. And I think if you look over the, the past several years, again, think about GBTC, which is now trading at, I think it's about a 30% discount. That was at a premium. So if you were an investor, you bought that at a premium and wrote it down with a discount, you were far underperforming the spot price of Bitcoin. Think about investors who had Bitcoin with FTX. They can't get that. Think about even investors who maybe decide to self-custody their own Bitcoin. That's great. What if you lose your, your keys? So there, there's a whole host of reasons I could go on. I mean, MicroStrategy, here's a company where you have the CEO levering up to buy Bitcoin, basically turn that company's shares into a proxy Bitcoin ETF. But it's, there's leverage involved there. So you think about all these different ways that investors have tried to access the price of Bitcoin over the years, they're all suboptimal in my opinion, and they're, they're not as efficient as an ETF would be. Yeah, you're not a Bitcoin bull, you're an ETF bull, and really you've been one your whole career, and it is a good wrapper, could be a good wrapper for assets like this, right? 100%. Well, the other thing too is once you put something into an ETF wrapper, think about the market making that goes on behind the scenes of this to keep the ETF share price in line with the underlying asset. You have authorized participants. I don't want to get too far in the weeds here. These are Wall Street players. They're not in the business of losing money. 
And so if they think if they're dealing with crypto exchanges, they think there's any sort of shenanigans, they're going to sniff it out. And what an ETF would do is really shine, you know, a, a huge light on these crypto exchanges, I think would help the SEC's cause. Let's go out on this, Nate. You know, Investopedia is a site built on our financial terms in our dictionary. I'm wondering what your favorite financial or investing term is. I have a couple of inklings of what it might be, but I'm sure you have a good one up your sleeve that we probably haven't heard before. So what is Nate Geraci's favorite investing or finance term? Really, I always go back to the old cliches, things like there's no free lunch in investing, you know, no risk, no return. And you can laugh at that, but I think sometimes investors become so enamored with shiny objects out there. And some of these sales pitches that I see, it does come back to education. Investopedia does an excellent job of that. I think it should always start with education and know that, again, there's no free lunch. So educate yourself on how you can best achieve risk returns for you. So I don't have a great answer there. You're putting me on the spot. I'm sure if I thought about it, I could come up with something better. But I'm, I'm a man of cliches. I'm pretty boring on the investment side of the equation. We like no free lunch. We're going to take that and take it to the bank. And again, folks, check out what Nate and his team have at the ETF store at the ETF Institute and tune in to the ETF Prime podcast. We'll link to all of those in the show notes. So very good to have you on the Investopedia Express. We are big fans and look forward to talking to you again. Thank you. This has been fun. It's terminology time, time for us to get smart with the investing and finance term we need to know this week. And this week's term comes to us from J.H. Coetzee, who hit us up on the gram, suggesting Elliott Wave Theory. We like that technical analysis term, given the good vibes floating around the stock market lately. According to J.H. and our favorite website, the Elliott Wave Theory in technical analysis describes price movements in the financial markets by observing and interpreting so-called impulse waves tied to changes in investor sentiment and psychology. Those impulse waves establish patterns in markets as well as corrective waves that oppose the larger trend. The Elliott Wave Theory was developed by Ralph Nelson Elliott in the 1930s, who studied 75 years worth of yearly, monthly, weekly, daily, and self-made hourly and 30-minute charts across various indexes. His theory gained notoriety in 1935 when Elliott made an uncanny prediction of a stock market bottom, and it's become a staple for thousands of portfolio managers, traders, and private investors. Elliott defined rules to identify, predict, and capitalize on wave patterns in books, articles, and letters summarized in R. N. Elliott's Masterworks, published in 1994. Great suggestion, J.H. We love that mix of sentiment and trading patterns that are all part of riding the waves of trading and investing. Last week, we got to celebrate our favorite event of the year, the release of the Investopedia 100, our list of the 100 most influential independent financial advisors in the country. The 100 represents those advisors who use their platforms across social media, their own websites, newsletters, and podcasts, broadcasts, and speaking appearances to spread the gospel of financial literacy and education to their clients, to their communities, and to their fellow advisors. We believe at Investopedia that financial advisors are our guides and allies to help us all make the best decisions we can about our money. We have a very special place in our hearts for those advisors, like the ones on the Investopedia 100, but all advisors, those who use education as their calling card to help lift everyone around them. It is our honor to honor them, and we salute all financial advisors for the great work that they do. We'll link to the list of the Investopedia 100 for 2023, and if you're looking for advice or planning in your state, you're going to find a list of terrific advisors no matter where you live in the United States. Special thanks to Nate Geraci for joining The Express. We're going to link to his terrific newsletter and podcast in the show notes, as well as all the reports we cited in this week's episode. And we'll talk again 
a little further on down the line.